Hey everybody, welcome back on the Blockworks Macro YouTube channel. The show of this week features my very good friend, Eric Besmajan. I hope I don't butcher your surname, mate, but um, you know, I get this treatment no, the whole time with that's my... That's the best pronunciation I've gotten so far. <laughs> he is the founder, CEO, the man behind EPBR Research, which is a great macro research shop. Eric, how are you doing? Doing well, Al. Thanks for uh, having me. Lots gone on since the last time we talked. <laughs> yes, I have to say so as well. So why don't we refresh your macro framework, which is very data-driven, and I think it separates very well cycles from trends when it comes to mm -hmm. macro. So please walk us through your um, view of the macro landscape as we stand today. Okay. So, so as you mentioned, um, I try and separate two things. You know, In macro, a lot of times we conflate secular trends and cyclical trends. Secular trends are the very long-term, slow-moving forces in the economy, things that are impacted by debt, demographics, things like this. Um, you know, you can have a secular decline in the rate of growth that happens over 10, 20, 30 years, but you can have many cyclical ups and downs that happen within that cycle. So for example, uh, you know, what I like to reference all the time is that from 2010 through 2020, we had one long expansion. Um, there was no recessions, but we had several cyclical upturns and cyclical downturns in growth. So those are cyclical trends that happen within a longer term secular trend. So for this conversation, we'll, we'll talk about mainly the cyclical trends because I feel like that's the more pressing issue. And that's generally what, what people are most concerned about because it impacts asset allocation on a more timely basis, something like, uh, you know, eight to 12 months. So on a, on a cyclical basis, I think what's really important is we have to uh, figure out how do we define these trends? You know, how do we know if growth is increasing, growth is decreasing, inflation is increasing, decreasing? What's the, the target? And in my framework, the target is what's called coincident data. Coincident data um, defines the trend because the peaks and troughs coincide with the peaks and troughs in the business cycle. So coincident data, the basket would include things like uh, GDP, GDI, employment, consumption, retail sales, income, the big uh, industrial production, the big broad measures of the economy that the Federal Reserve looks at, that anybody would look at to define how is the economy doing today. And on that basis, uh, and by the way, those are all in real terms. And on that basis, if we take the sort of aggregation of all those metrics that I outlined, uh, growth in the economy right now is trending at slightly less than 2%. Uh, it's being held up uh, by some stronger categories like employment. Uh, it's being pulled down by some weaker categories like real consumption, real GDP. Um, so growth is in a declining trend. The growth rate is falling. And right now it's trending at a little bit less than 2%. But that coincident data doesn't tell us where we're going in the future. It just defines the trend. That's the target. Um, corporate profits, for example, would also follow that trend in coincident growth. So to understand where we're going in the future, what those coincident indicators may look like two quarters, three quarters ahead, we have to look at uh, leading economic indicators. 
And leading economic indicators uh, have, you know, become a very overused term in, in the FinTwit space where, you know, you just put two lines on a chart and that's a leading indicator. But it's, it's really, um, it's, it's, it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, leading indicators are not some magical black box. They're just, uh, they're just data points that move uh, before a recession begins. So if job losses tend to occur in the vicinity of the start date of a recession, there are some factors that will move ahead of that almost 100% of the time. And that's what we mean by leading economic indicators. So I separate these leading indicators into two buckets to give me uh, you know, a, a confirmation or a confirmatory step. So I look at what are called longer leading indicators, things that move way in advance of the start date of a recession, maybe 12 months. Uh, and then I look at things called shorter leading indicators, which give you a more timely indication of, hey, coincident data, like maybe jobs are going to turn down very soon, something in the next two to three months. Those longer leading indicators should not be used for asset allocation purposes because they can have too long of a lead time. What they're used for is to give you a very strong warning signal that your shorter leading data, the stuff that really should drive your asset allocation decisions, that stuff is subject to move. So you should be alert to that. And when that data does move, if it's preceded by a change in longer leading indicators, it's a, uh, a signal to you that the move is not noise. Because this data is volatile, the data is choppy, you could have two months up, two months down. How do you know if that's you know, just noise or volatility or the start of a trend. You know that based on the movements and the longer leading indicators. So where we stand today is the coincident indicators, the target, the growth rate in the economy is decelerating. It's at a little bit less than 2%, so it's not quite a recession yet. The longer leading indicators are collapsing, so to speak, um, deeply, deeply, deeply negative. Uh, super consistent with recession across the entire basket. And then when we move to our shorter leading indicators, we're seeing the collective basket of shorter leading indicators on the cusp of turning negative. Some of them are negative. Some of them, particularly your labor mar market metrics, are not. Um, so we're, we're on the cusp of turning negative in the shorter leading indicators. And what that would tell me is that over the next two quarters, uh, we should expect those coincident indicators to move very close to, if not into, uh, recessionary territory. So, Eric, um, we're looking at a trend of declining growth that has started roughly in April 2021, um, let's say summer 2021. Not a coincidence because the last rounds of fiscal stimulus in the US were indeed uh, late 2020, beginning of 2021. So we, with a bit of a lag, that kind of um, cyclical impulse to growth actually mm -hmm. exhausted. And then this, this trending growth has been moving down, which means we aren't in a recession yet uh, by looking at aggregate indicators. But as you suggested, forward-looking and coincident indicators are pointing that way, which begs the question. Eric, how do you define a recession? What are you looking at to say, mm -hmm. are we there yet? And right. um, according to your forward-looking indicators, what's the lead time from now that might actually send us into a recession? Okay, so um, there's a lot of debate about what defines a recession, two quarters of negative GDP, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's actually funny. The definition has never changed. It's actually, if you go on the NBER website, the definition is right there. Um, it's a widespread contraction across um, all segments of the economy, including 
income, consumption, production, employment, GDP. So it's not enough to have two negative quarters of GDP because we had two negative quarters of GDP, but every other metric, including production, income, consumption, and employment were all positive. So that's not a widespread contraction. So what I am looking for to, uh, you know, because the recessions will always be dated in hindsight, but how do we sort of try and do it in real time? I would be looking for a contraction in several or all of the coincident indicators. So for example, uh, the last two months, we've had two negative monthly readings of industrial production. We had two negative quarters of GDP. So we're getting closer, but the employment numbers are not close to being negative. And you need job losses to be uh, uh, to officially be in a recession. So the start date of the recession, in, in my view, will, will be when you have job losses as well as a contraction in several other coincident indicators, whether it's industrial production, uh, personal income, retail sales, things like this. Um, as far as timing, right now we have a couple of coincident indicators that are contracting and we're trending at about 1.8%. So we're close. We're close, but we're not there yet, specifically because we haven't had job losses. I believe that a recession is likely to begin in the vicinity of Q1, maybe a little bit before, maybe a little bit after. You know, in, in cycle terms, nailing the start date of the recession to the quarter is a very difficult uh, task to do, especially in real time with data that's heavily revised. The reason I arrive at the Q1 window is, is for a couple reasons, and I and I presented in my last report several reasons on how I get there. First is the sequence of uh, indicators from long leading to short leading to coincident that I just outlined. We have longer leading indicators that are deeply, deeply negative, and they've been deeply negative for several, uh, several months now. And now we have shorter leading indicators, things like new orders, um, things like you know industrial commodity prices like copper falling 30% from their peak. These are shorter leading indicators that are uh, borderline recessionary. So the fact that you have a contraction in longer leading indicators and now you're starting to see contractions in shorter leading indicators gives you a very strong warning signal that sometime in the next two, three, four months, you should begin to see contractions across a wider basket of coincident indicators. So that's my first clue that uh, Q1 may be roughly uh, the, the area what we're looking at as for the start date of the recession. But I try and refine that window a couple different ways. So I try and look at several uh, consistent, uh, reliable indicators. One which um, I, I look at quite frequently, and it's a, a chart that is a little bit difficult to visualize, but you could see it on my Twitter feed, is the percentage of GDP that comes from housing and durable goods. It's an extremely cyclical indicator. It only makes up anywhere between 10 to 15% of the economy, but when the economy is accelerating, it's expanding rapidly. And when the economy is decelerating, it's falling rapidly. If you look at the average lead time from the peak in the relative share of housing and goods as a percentage of GDP to the start of the recession, it's on average seven quarters. You go back all the way to the 1960s for this analysis. It's on average seven quarters, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. The peak this time was in Q2 of 2021. Fast forward seven quarters, if you use the average, that places a potential recessionary start date in Q1. The second thing I would look at to confirm my process, totally objective, I have nothing to do with the conference board. You take the conference board leading economic index. 
reliable index. It's been published for a long time. It's widely viewed. The conference board leading index declined uh, again in October, deeply negative on a year-over-year basis. And the senior economists, the people that publish the conference board index, have uh, said in their last press release that the leading economic index for the conference board is declining in a fashion that's consistent with a recession beginning around year end. So that's maybe a slightly ahead of the window that I'm talking about. Then you look at something like the yield curve, right? You take the 10-year minus two-year spread as an example. The initial inversion of the yield curve on average occurs 12 months before the start date of a recession. Again, sometimes longer, sometimes shorter. The initial inversion of the twos tens was around June of this year. So if you take the 12 month lead time, that puts you in June of next year. So sometime between now, uh, the year end and uh, June of next year is a recessionary pocket that's consistent with the sequential uh, you know, or order of operations, if you will, of indicators that I'm tracking. It's consistent with the relative share of housing and goods declining. It's consistent with the conference board leading economic index. And it's consistent with the deep inversion that we're seeing in the yield curve. So that's sort of a abridged process of how I go about trying to refine the potential timing of a recessionary window. And I'm, I'm right now in the Q1 window, which I don't believe is priced into asset markets. We agree, Eric, with a similar assessment, perhaps looking at slightly different um, leading indicators or a subset of those. I mean, it's a very broad out there when it comes to macro. My assessment is that February to March is the median base case I have for the start of a recession. When it comes to yield curves, I also run a similar analysis looking at different slopes in the past. And uh, I like the OIS curve a lot uh, because it cleans out a lot of noise around repo balance sheet costs for the treasury mm -hmm. curve. And if I look at that curve slope, two stands inverted in uh, March or April. So again, the 12 month thing, it would push us roughly to March. And then there are some indicators that are pointing to a bit early, a bit later, but hey, we are discussing pinpointing the right month for a recession, big picture. <laughs> right. uh, we agree that we are going into it. And now we should talk about uh, what the market is pricing in. And mm, one has to say that the market isn't pricing in an aggressive growth environment next year. You can see that in the fact that the market is pricing in earnings per share to grow 5% in nominal terms next year, which is, mm -hmm. I mean, below average growth mm -hmm. here in the US. Normally, earnings in nominal terms grow 8 to 10% in an average year, roughly 7 to 8%. Next year, 4 to 5 is analyst predictions. The bond market is pricing in basically a long Fed pause, something mm -hmm. along these lines with Fed funds anywhere between four and a half and 5% until the end of next year. Yeah, mm -hmm. 25, 50 basis point of cuts in, in the end of next year, but nothing really material. Um, credit spreads are sitting wider than the beginning of the year, but not consistent with a widespread mm -hmm. recession, rather with an economic slowdown, one should say. Exactly. So it looks to me like the market is pricing that the direction of travel is similar to the one we are discussing, the magnitude and the intensity and how soon this arrives is probably not correctly priced in. But I want to get your take on different asset classes here. Yeah, I think that that you describe the situation perfectly. So the market is definitely pricing in uh, directionally slower growth. Uh, I think that we can you know grant the market that they're seeing the slowdown. Um, credit spreads are widening ever so slowly, as you mentioned. But the slowdown, in my view, that the market is pricing is one that's uh, extraordinarily mild. 
even more mild than the slowdowns that we had in 2012, 2016, and 2019. Uh, some of the way that I arrive at that conclusion is that if you look at uh, credit spreads, yeah, they're, they're widening. But in 2012, 2016, and 2019, we got to almost 300 basis points in each of those events, if not slightly wider in the in the previous uh, in the earlier two. Uh, we're we're sitting at 200 basis points right now. So 300 basis points is still not really recessionary pricing. It's just deep slowdown pricing. So. Um, Directionally, spreads are widening, makes sense with a slowdown, but in magnitude terms, not closely pricing in a recession. The other thing that I look at is I like to look at the relative uh, performance ratio between asset classes. So I'll look at the ratio. Um, I don't like to use SPY because of the influence of tech, but I like to use like the Russell 2000. 2000 stocks, uh, ec more economically sensitive. So if you look at the Russell 2000 relative to gold, so you plot IWM over GLD, to me, this is the market's interpretation of real economic growth. And what you see is that the ratio has been declining since last year, consistent with slowing economic growth, but the uh, ratio has stabilized over the last six months, hasn't made a new low, hasn't gone down to uh, pre-COVID levels. Um, so again, that's another asset class or, or performance ratio that's consistent with growth slowing, but not at all pricing recessionary conditions. Um, and then, as you mentioned, uh, the uh, what's priced into the bond market. Yes, we have a, we have a very deep inversion in the back end of the yield curve, like twos, tens. But if we look at the front end of the yield curve, as as, as you were noting, we're pricing in fifty basis points of cuts in all of twenty twenty three. And those cuts aren't coming until the, the last quarter, maybe last two quarters. In a normal recession, a mild recession, the Fed cuts rates 200, 300, 400 basis points. So if a recession does arrive in the first quarter or even the first half of the year, which is my view, it's extraordinarily unlikely that the Fed's going to hold rates at 4% throughout that entire period. So yes, the bond market is pricing in cuts, but it's not pricing in a recessionary environment. If that was the case, then in my opinion, we'd already see front-end inversions, something like the two-year yield below the Fed funds rate. Um, that hasn't been priced in yet, and I could sort of understand that because coincident indicators like jobs are still too strong. However, we, we need to look at the forward-looking indicators. And when we look at the forward-looking indicators, uh, you know, as, as we just did, as we get into the, the, the Q1 area code, we're likely to see those coincident indicators deteriorate. The last point that I would mention, Alf, is that these leading indicators are admittedly much better at getting the direction right versus the magnitude. Correct. But there is some degree of correlation between the magnitude of the decline in the leading indicators and the magnitude of the decline in the coincident indicators. Not as good as direction, but there is some clues or hints, let's say. Um, so what we're seeing or what I'm seeing in my leading indicators, I'd like to know what you see in yours, is leading indicators have sort of declined like this and then like this. And now we're seeing shorter leading indicators Things like you know new order reports, you know regional Fed surveys, ISM, where they're kind of going like this, and now they're starting to come down with a little bit more of an aggressive slope. 
So I believe what's going to happen to coincident indicators is something similar where the decline has gone from really elevated levels, like eight, nine percent. We've gone down slowly. Now we're at, you know, flattening out at two percent. I think we go like that. And we as we get into the Q1 window. And when when the decline moves from gradual to off a cliff, as the leading indicators did, then I believe we see much more significant repricing across asset markets. I really like your parallel and your um, use of market internals. I think it was Stanley Druckenmiller that says that the guts of the stock market is its favorite economist or Paul Tudor mm-hmm. Jones, one of these two guys. If I look at, for instance, the performance of consumer staples or defensive sectors in the U.S. equity market over the last few weeks, they've started to overperform cyclicals a bit more aggressively, a bit mm-hmm. like, you know, Basically, the market is saying the entire stock market is holding down okay. But if you look at the internals of the stock market, you'll see a preference for defensive sectors uh, popping up a bit more over the last few weeks. And also the other thing is, um, as a parallel, I really like 2001 here. And at, at the end of 2000, the labor market started to suffer a little bit. There's the mild slowdown in, in the pace of hiring. Earnings were slowing down, very similar to today, where... It's still positive job creation, but not at the same pace as it was mm-hmm. uh, six months ago or nine months ago. And then in Q1 2001, we started having the first, uh, you know, NFPs close to zero, like 50K, 70K right. jobs addition, way below the trend necessary to keep unemployment rate stable. And earnings started dropping pretty materially. Well, that marked the start of a recession with hindsight, and the Federal Reserve cut in 2001 by 500 basis points. That's a pivot. That's a Fed cut. Now, I want to ask you, um, what do you make of several asset classes here? Because I also think that that episode in 2001, where the Fed aggressively pivoted, might actually mislead some people to think that that is a great moment to start buying risk assets again. But let me get your take on how do you see asset classes in 2023? Yeah. So I just want to make a couple couple caveats of, of anomalous situations that we have to be aware of. Um, we're obviously coming off of a, a inflationary period. And if you look at the 1974 recession, job losses didn't begin until eight months after the recession began. Now, it's not usual. It's very unusual, but it did happen. So that would be something like the recession gets marked uh, December 2022, and job losses don't begin until July or August of 2023, right? Unusual situation, but it did occur. So we have to be aware uh, and we have to track a broad basket of coincident indicators because any one indicator may be giving a different signal than the collective basket, but it's the collective basket that makes the determination. I use the same process when I look at the guts or the internals of, of the stock market or asset markets where you have to look at a, a, a basket of market internals, 10, 8, something like this, because uh, the, the more narrow you get, the more subject any one indicator is to fail due to idiosyncrasies. But when the whole basket is moving in the same direction, uh, that gives you a, a stronger um, a stronger idea of, of what the market is actually pricing in and sort of filters out any one-off events. Um, the only difference, I like the 2001 analogy a lot. 
um, because it, it really speaks to the duration of the slowdown, right? From you know the end of 2000 all the way into 2002, which could be a situation that we're dealing with now because this slowdown began in 2021. And because the Fed is projected to keep tightening into 23, we could be dealing with a two-year-plus slowdown. The only major difference I see to the 2000s period is there was virtually no slowdown in the housing market in the 2000s recession, where this time the slowdown is extraordinarily severe. Uh, the only period that really mirrors this decline in the housing market is the 07 period. Now, granted, there wasn't the same banking issues, but uh, I think that we have to uh, keep that in mind. As far as asset classes, uh, you know, risk assets broadly, I'll just bucket the risk assets broadly, whether it's stocks or credit spreads, uh, I expect continued downside in 23. And I expect more of the recessionary pricing to come through risk assets. That would be a widening of credit spreads. And that would be a decline in stock prices, more from the earnings component versus from the interest rate component. So that's likely to be an underperformance of your cyclicals, like maybe your industrials, your materials, rather than the, the tech catastrophe that we've seen this year. The, the destruction of technology stocks was mainly, in my view, a repricing of interest rates, uh, given that those are super long duration assets, specifically the companies with no earnings. As we move into 23 uh, and we start to see that E come down pretty aggressively, we should see the cyclicals underperform, including things like the banks, which have outperformed this year. Um, as uh, the other major difference that I see going into 2023 is I believe that we should see uh, the negative correlation between stocks and bonds return. The only reason that we've seen a positive correlation between stocks and bonds is because growth has been slowing. So risk assets have been coming down, but the Fed has been hiking rates so aggressively that the upward pressure of the Fed funds rate has uh, overpowered the decline in growth that we're seeing. So we're seeing a bare flattening of the curve. But in, in price terms, that's caused a price decline for bonds and a price decline for stocks, positive correlation. In 23, as recessionary pricing hits the market, uh, I think we see a, a return of the, uh, the more historical negative correlation because the Fed is going to be forced to either stop hiking interest rates uh, or begin to outright cut interest rates, which should give upward pressure to bond prices, but we should have downward pressure still for stocks because of the earnings component. Um, those are those are the main differences that I see uh, going into 23 versus the asset prices in, in 22. Um, you know, I have some ancillary opinions on you know commodities and, and currencies, but I'm not as focused on those markets as I am on major stock bonds. Yeah. And I think those comebacks of negative correlation between bond prices and stock prices is a, is an interesting point that you actually bring to the table. And I want to stress, Eric, before I um, ask you for your closing remarks, that Fed pivot isn't necessarily bullish risk assets because, yes, you can lower the discount rates if the Fed starts cutting rates. But what about if earnings are tanking? I mean, right. normally uh, stock markets tend to bottom when you're well in into a recession yeah. and earnings have already basically been repriced yeah. as low as they can and negativity is there. And the Federal Reserve has already eased materially until that right. point, which means a year later you can start projecting loser financial conditions, earnings recovery. But if your macro thesis is right, we are nowhere near yet that yeah, point. You're exactly correct. So the way that I like to describe it is if the economy achieves a soft landing, you think of uh, December 2018, Fed pivots are much more timely with market recoveries. 
Uh, and if you go back to that period, we had a widening of credit spreads. Uh, financial markets were starting to uh, panic a little bit. Growth was declining, but we were nowhere close to really a recession yet. So the Fed pivoted when recession wasn't really on the table and asset markets recovered pretty quickly. So if, you, if you're not in a recessionary window or the economy has a strong probability of achieving a soft landing, then Fed pivots can be more timely with recoveries in asset markets. But if you look at like 2006, the Fed stopped hiking rates in middle of 2006. They started cutting rates in the middle of 2007, but the economy ultimately went into a recession and the market didn't bottom until a year and a half later, right? So um, there is a point of no return in the sense that monetary policy does have long and variable lags. Once the Fed crosses the threshold and over tightens, the economy is going to go into a recession, whether they ease policy or not. And in my view, we've crossed that point in the sense that if the Fed stopped hiking rates today, even if they started cutting rates today, I believe the economy would still go into recession. And stock prices tend to bottom one to three months before the economy bottoms, the economy being defined as those coincident indicators. Just to give a reference period, the recession or the economy bottomed in June of 2009 the stock market bottomed three months earlier in March of 2009. So in my view, the Fed has tightened enough and the leading indicators have deteriorated enough where the economy is going to go into a recession regardless. Now, the Fed may create a deeper recession by tightening too much and staying tight for too long. Uh, but until we see a bottom and an upturn in the longer leading indicators, we're not even on the radar screen for a potential bottom in the stock market. So the only way that the stock market could have already bottomed, in my view, is if we don't have a recession and growth bottomed and we're going to accelerate in 2023. I don't see that as a probable event, given the indicators that I'm tracking. So I think that the economy continues to decline. We go into recession in the, in the, the beginning of next year, and we actually, you know, people say, well, when do you think maybe you could start buying risk assets? And I say, it's nowhere on the radar screen yet because I haven't seen a, a, a bottoming at all in my longer leading indicators. My longer leading indicators will have to bottom and turn up before I can give a probable window for when the economy may bottom. Uh, these leading indicators admittedly can only see out three to four quarters maximum. So all I can say is that in the next three to four quarters, we're unlikely to see a bottom in the economy. And therefore, I think risk assets have turbulence until that point. That's correct. I tend to share that view, Eric. And another interesting way to put it is that the economy and markets in 2023 are going to be a reflection of what the Federal Reserve did in the first nine months of 2022, to say yeah. the least. There are uh, monetary policy and fiscal policy, by the way, the drug we're seeing there as well, act on the real economy and markets yes. with a lag that can be sometimes as long as nine to 12 months. Yeah. Fair summary, I think. I'll give a, uh, I'll give a shout out to someone I like very much, Alex Gurevich. Oh, he's yeah. been giving several interviews and he's, I'll, you know, I'll just take this directly from him. Uh, you know, when the Fed, let's say the Fed hikes interest rates, that's going to impact coincident growth something like eight to 12 months in the future. But then that's going to impact inflation another six months or so after that. So inflation always lags growth. So the lag between Fed rate hike and inflation 
could be up to 18 months. Yeah. Where the lag between Fed hike and growth is something like 12 months. So uh, Alex says in some of his recent interviews that the inflation that we're seeing in 2022 is really a result of monetary policy in late 2020, early 2021. And what was that policy? It was, you know, QE while the housing market was going up 20% per annum. It was fiscal stimulus and it was zero rates. The inflation rate that we're likely to see at the end of 2023, beginning of 2024, is going to be a result of monetary policy we're seeing today, which is 75 basis point rate hikes, aggressive quantitative tightening, and uh, and no fiscal impulse at all. So yes. uh, he explained it very, very well. I recommend everyone check out his latest interviews. Yeah, I heard uh, that interview as well. And uh, one of the most interesting thing is that um, if I look at one of my long uh, leading indicators, my credit impulse, uh, global credit impulse, as it has been very vicious on the way up, it's also very vicious on the way down. But people are somehow assuming that a um, potential regime change in uh, in the trend level of inflation over the next 5 to 10 to 20 years, something that could play out over the very long term, mm-hmm. is for some reason totally immune from a vast, very fast cyclical slowdown in inflation. I mean, you can have inflation settling at 3 or 5%, whatever your theory is for the long run. But that doesn't mean that inflation can be can print zero in 2024, potentially. <laughs> right. If you tighten the screws hard enough, whatever your right. new trend level is, you can still get a lot of downside in the very short yeah. term. I think, I think, I think that's exactly the difference between secular and cyclical, right? Because when we averaged over the last 10 years, we averaged, let's say, inflation of slightly less than 2%. It wasn't a straight line. It was a function of zero to three, zero to two and a half, zero to two. Yeah. If we move into a inflation regime that's three or four, which is not my view, but if we do move into a secular inflation regime, it's not going to be inflation declines from eight to four and goes sideways, which is, seems what everyone is, is portraying. If that does occur, it will be uh, all that will happen is the cyclical trends will just oscillate around a higher band. So we'll go from two to six to three to five, something like that, and it'll average four. We're not going to go to four and go directly sideways. The economy cycles, uh, unless we move into a full commanded control economy, uh, even more greater than China, for example, or something like China, which is not in, I think, anyone's forecast, free markets will always have an inherent cyclicality to them. Uh, so I agree with your point that we, we are going to go um, down directionally. And then the secular view is you know, still up for debate, maybe a topic for a whole other conversation. Eric, always a great pleasure to have you here exchange macro views with, uh, with me. Um, if people don't know where to find you yet, oh gosh, if they don't know yet, where can they do that? Um, Twitter is a good place to find some of my uh, spur of the moment thoughts. Uh, you can follow me at EPB Research, and then you can just go to my website, epbresearch.com. We have a free framework video. It's 10 minutes. It sort of takes you through how I think about secular trends, cyclical trends, gives you a roadmap for how I think about the economy. So I would recommend going to epbresearch.com and just watching that free 10-minute framework video kind of gives you my whole take on uh, how I uh, look at the world. Eric's uh, macro research shop is excellent. Data-driven, very clear, as you have heard from this interview, great explanatory skills as well. Eric, always a pleasure to have you here and I hope to have you back soon. Thanks, Eric.